HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate good news in the food world, from record-setting butter sculptures to the latest discoveries in crop cultivation. I think it was back in 2015. It was 2,370 pounds, and it was a Paris landscape. And so that became the Guinness World Record butter sculpture. We don't understand everything about the world. So plant breeding also lets us work with all the unknown maybe discovered along the way. And we hear from the beloved chef and disaster relief organizer, Jose Andres. Well, World Central Kitchen, we're an organization that we like to be the first ones on the ground. And more often than not, we are the last ones on the ground. Tune in to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Evan Funke, and I know I probably did that incorrectly, (laughs) Evan Funk with an E, the American Sfoglino, and we're going to define what that term is for those of you that don't know. I mean, we could have just as easily said master pasta maker, but I think there's so much more inherently uh, tied to that title than just being good at making pasta. Uh, You were a born and raised Californian, and I don't believe that's an area uh, specifically known for pasta. I think South Beach diet. I think, you know, lands of fruits (laughs) and nuts. So what what actually is pasta tied to in the areas that you grew up in? Uh, There's there's no relation whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, um, My my mother was raised uh, in San Francisco in Little Italy by proxy of... Um, her mother worked for the U.S. government, and she was raised by these four Italian families uh, in Little Italy on on Russian Hill. So, um, so there's that kind of connection. Uh, but uh, 
some of my first culinary memories uh, are of those families and going to their houses and smelling these uh, amazing new scents. And, you know, I come from a big family, but very much an American family, you know, hockey puck, well done hamburgers and macaroni and cheese and shit like that. But like um, the love of pasta was really kind of, uh, uh, it was really born from, uh, from frustration. Um, and um, my time at Spago and seeing this, you know, one particular shape, which was the shape that propelled me to, to Italy for the first time, which is the Agnolotti. It's very much uh, inspired and enamored with uh, the, the elegance of the shape and the um, natural engineering of the shape. Very much in, inspired by that and very interested in where it came from and its history and its provenance and all that. So, um, it wasn't the elbow or the shell of the mac and cheese that made you want to be a pasta no. maker? Did you ever consider that pasta, or was that mac and cheese? No, that was mac and cheese. That's, yeah. Those are noodles. Yeah. So I mean, my mom used to make goulash with butter noodles. Yeah. Sure, you know. Delicious. Amazing. Yeah. But those are noodles. That's wait, not pasta. Wait, let's define what noodles are versus pasta. Okay, so pasta is the identity of a country. This pasta is Italy. Whereas noodles were born much, much earlier in Asia. Those are noodles. That's not pasta. That's noodles. So... Um, the difference uh, is really about where it comes from, number one. And number two, uh, your intention for said dough, flat dough made into shapes. So that's, that's really what it is. And I've seen like you know, Asian restaurants use spaghetti and vermicelli in their preparations and disguise it as something else. So I think it's a six of one and half a dozen of the other, but I think pasta is the identity of, of Italy, and it's unique in that. Yet an Austrian chef named Wolfgang Puck is the one that propelled you into pasta <laughs> making in Italy. True. So this, this angolotti, first of all, define the shape of that angle and what it's used for as a vessel. So angolotti uh, is so ingeniously engineered. It is a self-sealing ravioli. So, agnolotti has two forms. One is a, an envelope, which is basically a tortelli, a square fold over ravioli. I wish we could show these hand motions that you're making of it. <laughs> I don't know if you even know that you're making them. It just may be second nature. It is second yeah. nature. I get it from my dad. He's very expressive when he talks. But, uh, but the agnolotti dal plin, which means to pinch, is again the same self-sealed ravioli with a fold over closure and then a pinch, which creates this kind of uh, straining against the, uh, the filling. So it kind of, it sticks its guts out and it sticks its ass out. So it has this kind of, uh, the, it has wings that on the pinch, when you cut it, it has these wings that come a, kind of come around and hug the filling in the front and create these two small little vessels to capture sauce. It's brilliantly engineered. Yeah, I mean, it sounds cherubic. It almost sounds like a Cupid in the way that you described it. You know, you know, a big fat ass. And not that I think of Cupids <laughs> in that way, but, you know, like a bulbous stomach, but these wings. So it yeah. has some lightness to it as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, mine does. Yeah. <laughs> mind that's because I, I think of the architecture of a shape very differently than most people um, and that's kind of born from my time uh, working with a gentleman named Kozuku Kawamura who I mentioned in the book Americans Folino uh, in the introduction he and uh, my other great mentor Alessandro Spizni of La Vecchia Scuola Bolognese um, 
with their two styles. One born from the very romantic, uh, beautiful, homegrown style of Bologna from Alessandra and this very strict, perfection, maniacal uh, approach to the non-dogmatic uh, approach to pasta coming from Kozoku. And my pasta is this confluence of those two styles, those two perspectives and philosophies. Well, I mean, you're learning from a Nona and a Shakunin, you know, a woman Precisely. who's inherently of the area, but then someone who's masterful of this singular thing, but coming from the land of noodles, as, as you priorly define. Precisely. So where do you fall in between? I, I, I know you just said you were the confluence of these things, but if there was a scale, do you lean more towards one way or another? <laughs> oh, you don't want to pick. I think at heart and soul, I, I lean towards uh, Alessandra, but um, on the business side of things, uh, not just the business, but the, the my perfectionism is very much, uh, very much on fire when it comes to that side of, of reaching the ultimate, uh, the ultimate shape, the ultimate sfoglia, the perfectly rolled, perfectly uniform uh, sheet of pasta. So I think I fall dead in, dead in the center. Do you not like the term rustic then? I think rustic as a word is bullshit. <laughs> Because like they they can slap it on anything and it's like it's like greenwashing you know what's yeah. sustainable yeah but l let's define Bologna as a whole you know not not pronounced Bologna as as many Americans see <laughs> but Bologna is often explained as as you know the heart and soul of Italian cuisine but it's very rustic and that, that I actually I actually disagree with yeah. that because Bologna is the epicenter for handmade pasta mm. and uh, so much of the Bolognese cuisine has been influenced by the courts the royal courts and their expression through pasta is how fucking rich we are look at us we're putting eggs and we're using the bleach like the super bleached flour like look at us look how rich we are that's why you have two towers you know people building towers just to show people how rich they are. That's Bologna. So it's always been a very wealthy city. It's always had a very rich culture. Um, it houses the oldest university in Europe. Um, that's why the, the three nicknames of Bologna are Bologna La Rosa, La Grassa, La Dota. Yeah. So the educated, the fat, and the red. But then when, why does ragu have this okay. connotation so here's it here's the popularity of ragu is actually based out of the french kitchen in the 1500s french court culture was very very popular so obviously the italians were making pasta far far and away before ragu was actually paired with them they would mix it with vegetables or oils or whatever but it wasn't until the mixture of the french and italian courts did the marriage of ragu spelled rag out they came together and from there the popularity of these two cuisines clashing eventually spilled out and was eventually accepted by the common people so that's where the the marriage of the two became one. And obviously, 
became quintessential in defining this city and not just Bologna many 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 other cities are defined by how one makes ragu and that on top of it not only are there differences within each region but within each city and then from house to house to house because you can go to Alessandro's house and she's going to swear up and down to Jesus Christ that if you don't have pork fat and this cut of beef and this amount of uh, prosciutto in the ragu, then it's not fucking bolognese and don't even ask. You go next door and they tell you something completely different. And they're going to swear up and down to baby Jesus Christ that if you don't have veal and milk and nutmeg in it, it's not ragu bolognese. So just like your mom makes macaroni and cheese with Velveeta and my mom makes macaroni and cheese with Tillamook cheddar, What's authentic to you may not be authentic to me. And it's no different in Bologna. It's no different in Florence. It's no different in Bari. I, I think it's fascinating because we are talking about this one city in Emilia-Romagna, and that is so true. Moving east and west, just the, the shape of uh, pasta is the same, yet has different terminology as well. Well, it, it, it really born from the, the dialectual crossover, okay? So, um, and that's what's most beautiful about Italy is that the, the diversity is born from these small city-states that were only really unified until the late 1800s. And those are political lines. I like Sicily always reminds Italy of that too. You know, For sure, they're, they're Sicilian first and Italian second. Yes. Just like Sardinians are Sardinian first. It's like calling Puerto Rico the United States. Yeah. You know, yes, it's a part of the United States, but it's fucking Puerto Rico, you know, or Hawaii or whatever. So the Italians have a word which means pride of one's origin. It's called campanilissimo. It means you gather around the campanile, right? Which is the church, the clock tower, right? Campanilissimo, the pride of one's origin. And that is so alive and well, even today, in Italy, because of those deeply rooted culinary traditions that, that go back thousands and thousands of years, regardless of the political lines that have been drawn out by the government. Those things are still very much alive and well. And... For me, that's the juice, digging into that. It's not the, necessarily the, the technical knowledge that's passed on to me. It's the anthropology behind the shape. It's the people, the history, and the connection to the story. Because the only reason modern pasta exists is because of the story connected to the shape of the dish. I always thought it was the sauce connected to the pasta shape itself. We've been talking about bolognese, I think, more than pasta itself, making mm. doughs and making shapes, uh, how inherently tied to pasta making is sauce making or sauces? Or can you talk about pasta making uh, completely void of that? I mean, I think they're, that's a tough question. I mean, the, the condimenti, let me back up. There are no fucking rules. There's no rules anymore. I don't think there's any rules As anymore. As of this moment. Anywhere. Okay, like, just look around you. There's no more rules. But the iterations of a dish are as numerous as the cooks. So it goes back to what's authentic. Italians are very specific in how they cook. They cook with what's around them. And they fall in, into a tradition. Tradition is cumulative. You are inspired to do something over and over and over again because it inspires you to do so. That is a tradition. So tradition is born from 
seasons, it's born from sagras, it's born from holidays and whatever that is. And you continue to do it over and over and over again until it becomes, you know, all of a sudden it has this myth and this lore connected to it and it survives because of this story. Take for instance, um, the tortellini, okay? Tortellini. Tortellini is the quintessential shape of Bologna. It's not tagliatelle, it's tortellini. And the prowess and power of the pasta maker is defined by the shape. How small and how perfect can you make it? That's your mark as a pasta maker in Bologna is how small your tortellini is, okay? Isn't, isn't that dictated by how small your finger is, though, too? No. <laughs> no, because, and I learned that. Most of pasta making is about body mechanics. It's about teaching your body how to do something that typically is uncomfortable. So my hands are large, but I can make very, very small tortellini because I've taught myself to do so through repetition and persistence. But um, the tortellini has a very interesting story in that the story of tortellini is totally a myth. Venus comes to Earth, right? Venus yeah. comes to Earth after a great battle or whatever, and it decides to stay in an inn, right? And the innkeeper is so taken aback by the beauty of the goddess of love that he peeks through her keyhole at night and sees her navel and is so inspired by the beauty and curvature of the body that he goes into the kitchen and makes pasta. Total bullshit, but a great story so good that it has made it into modern times. And that's the only reason why these dishes still exist today is because the passage of the story passed down through generation to generation have made it here today, like Cacio e Pepe, right? The real story behind Cacio e Pepe is far less interesting than the myth and lore connected to it. I'd like to think that Annaloni, when spelled incorrectly, was because someone got a glimpse of someone's asshole and it's like, <laughs> I want to make a shape of pasta after that. But I know that's not true. But uh, this myth um, that, that's tied to, you know, Aphrodite and her belly button um, dictated the shape, but it also served a function for the sauce. For sure. Absolutely. Um, so all of these shapes, uh, every shape that you can find in the grocery store has an ancestral shape. And that's kind of my focus. Um, and the reason why those shapes are still alive today is because each and every one of them was born from a woman in the house making pasta by hand and making the same shit every single day and trying to disguise it in different shapes, right? So you and I, we're gonna eat semolina and water today. Yes, <laughs> again and again and again and again. So the ingenuity birthed these, this plethora of shapes because they had to keep it fresh and disguise the fact that they're eating the same fucking shit every single day. You just said it was matriarchal. Absolutely. Had it been, and when did it convert, or has it ever? It has not converted. Italy is is absolutely a matriarchal society, 100%. Where Spain is very machismo, like they have their symbol on the hill as you drive in the, uh, on the highway is a bull. It's very machismo. But Italy is like mother's love. It's like instantly familiar, very feminine. And I think it's very beautiful. Um, the, I don't know, the diversity of Italy is, I think, unmatched. It's one of the, the very true cuisines of, of the world. 
next to Chinese food. Well, on that, to throw us for a loop, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Harvest Homecoming, an old-school fall foliage festival, comes to Brooklyn Botanic Garden on Sunday, October 20th. Celebrate cider season with New York cider houses and kombucha makers, bringing hard and soft ciders and fermented drinks to try or buy. A pop-up farmer's market will feature heritage apples from local orchards. Groove to the sounds of fresh Americana music and world beats throughout the day. Bring your friends and family and make a day of it with hay rides, lawn games, a children's Halloween costume parade, and more all in the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Evan Funke of American Svoglino, uh, also of many restaurants in California. Of note, you know, you started your career, of course, at Wolfgang Puck, but after a stint in Bologna, came back and worked at Rustic Canyon, opened up Bucato, now at Felix Trattoria, mm-hmm. Abbott Kinney. And I wanted to talk about that menu before we talk about the book, because, first of all, Tutto la pasta fatta in casa. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? All pastas made in house. How important is that to you? To me? Yeah. Crucial. I mean, are there Absolutely any good crucial. dried or extruded pastas? 100%. To be perfectly honest, I don't eat fresh pasta in Northern America. I only eat it in Italy. Partly because it's disciplined. The other part is I don't want to muddle my culinary memory of perfectly made pasta with bullshit. So I'm not trying to diss people who make pasta. Please continue to make pasta, but please get fucking better at it. You have to think of pasta in a different way. You can't just throw flour and water into a hopper, mix it out, and make shapes. That's not pasta. That's faking. So it's not about the shape. It's about the depth of knowledge behind it. That's great. Like, I can go online right now to YouTube and connect with a hundred different pasta makers and throw that shape onto my menu and sell it. Great. Cool. But there's no understanding behind it. So I only run pastas at Felix that I've actually sat with the pasta maker and shaken their hand afterwards for gifting me the knowledge and the history and the connection to their family. Well, let's talk about that four different approaches or regions uh, you know there's the north the central mm-hmm. the mezzogiorno mm-hmm. and uh, the island pasta right which one do you want to start with <laughs> i mean we'll start it, at the top yeah. so uh, the menu at felix is broken up in that way so that it gives people the opportunity to eat in a more italian sequential manner right we want to promote uh, the way that people eat in italy you start with Uh, an aperitivo and then you have an antipasti and then you have pasta and then you have a secondo and then you have dolce and then cafe and then you have amaro and then you go home so it's a very long and drawn out style of eating but a lot of americans aren't in tune with that nor do they have the patience to do that so i wanted to give people the opportunity to choose the way that they wanted to eat 
And by breaking up the pastas in these four sections, uh, it's far easier for them to kind of orchestrate how they want to eat. So if you start in the north, I think right now we're running Tagliatella Bolognese, we're running Trofier with Pesto Genovese. So those two, I think there might be a third one, I'm not entirely sure, I've been in Italy for like a month, <laughs> so God knows what's happening. Um, so those two, obviously two very quintessential and defining pasta dishes from these regions. Obviously Bologna, Bologna and very specific ragu, the Maestro Alessandro's ragu vecchia scuola means old school. Her recipe is 200 years old. I've had to doctor the recipe in order for it to taste like Bologna. For me, Bologna is diesel fuel, melting pork fat, and cigarette smoke. Yeah, architecturally, it's not the most beautiful place from no. the exterior, but once you get inside... It's, it is gritty, it's Brooklyn, it's San Francisco, it's like, it's jazz and history and education and amazing cuisine. The people are the people are some of the most hospitable people I've ever run into in Italy. So you move over to, to Trofier, Alpesto, Genovese, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum... Genoa is probably the least hospitable place I've ever been. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to talk shit, but I have not had good experiences in Genoa, in Liguria, because their nature is not very warm. It's a little more guarded. That's a very kind word, guarded. Yeah. But I think that's due to their to their, um, their naval history. They were huge, dominant, next to the Venetians, dominant in the shipping lanes. And everybody wanted to get at them. So I totally get the historical value of, of how they do business and how they receive people because they're very, very guarded because of their history, naval history, and their commercial history with shipping. So I totally get it. But... The trophier is one of the most elegant shapes that you will, and one of the most difficult shapes to master, or at least at least become proficient at. So the trophier is a twisted kind of coil, and it's dressed with uh, basil pesto, if you want to be very basic. But pesto genovese, for me, um, is one of those delicate balances between garlic, formaggio, and the basil. And you can only really achieve it by buying the highest quality ingredients and then trying not to fuck it up. Mm -hmm. That seems like a lot of this book. And not to jump right into that, but first of all, fuck slash forget your pasta machine, I think is like the essence of this book because you aren't just making everything in-house, you're making everything by hand. Uh, the importance of the hand... Uh, using dowels, boards, cutters, chitara mm -hmm. maybe, um, and especially a mattarello. Uh, not to get away from your menu, but I, I want to talk about the simplicity of pasta making. I know it's not simple at all, hence why you've spent your life and written a book about this, but what should people get rid of and what should people uh, attain to be able to make I wouldn't pasta? get rid of anything. I, I don't, I'm not trying to get people to throw their Imperia crank out. I'm not trying to do that. What I'm trying to do is to open people's uh, eyes to the simplicity of this work. Is it difficult? Sure, at first. But repetition is the mother of all skill, right? Did you know how to drive a car the first time you got into that thing? Absolutely not. 
right? Or drive a stick shift or play a video game or whatever it is. Like you tried to do it over and over and over again because you were inspired to do so. I am inspired every single day to get better at pasta. My intentions and my drive is just different than other people. I'm inspired and driven to be the best pasta maker in the United States. So my intentions are just different than everybody else. So don't throw your pasta machine out. If you're comfortable making pasta with a hand crank machine or with a sheet or whatever, go for it. Thank, thank you. Continue. Make it. Make it yourself. Do it more. But try making it by hand and taste the victory once you get good at it. There's nothing as sweet as that. When you really nail it, you're like, fuck. There's no. Well, let, let's talk about a Mattarello. It is an intimidating piece of equipment, even though it's just a large wooden dowel. Yeah. It's a, it's a very straight piece of wood. The Mattarelli that I use are made by a gentleman by the name of uh, Davide Occhi. He's a second-generation artisan uh, based in Bologna. And um, the process of making these wooden dowels, the, the Mattarello, goes back to choosing the tree. So they choose the tree, then they cut the tree, and then they make blanks that are roughly four feet long. And then they cure the blanks for 30 days at 90 degrees Celsius in an oven, basically ridding them of all moisture. And then they turn them and then they cure them again. So it's extremely straight. So straight, it's perfect to one thousandth of an inch. This is a very, this is a, a precision instrument, even though it's a club, it's a precision instrument. So learning how to use this instrument is much like learning how to play the guitar or play the trumpet or whatever. Like you have to, or drive a car. Like you need to understand the nuts and bolts of how it works. And also beyond that, you need to understand how your body works with the mozzarella, the body mechanics. So much of pasta making is body mechanics, teaching your body a new skill. It's very easy for me to naturally good at it because I have rhythm. I played drums for 10 years, so like I'm ambidextrous. I can use all four of my limbs independently. So for me, it was like natural. I got it in like two weeks. But for a lot of people, they just don't have the movement and that's okay. But if you continue to try, you will teach your body how to use it. So it's hard. It's like playing baseball. Like, how do you hit a round ball with a round bat? Yeah. Or how do you make a delicate, light, thin pasta with this clunky piece of wood? And I remember the first time I ever tried, I got to take a class in Bologna, and I was handed, you know, this large mattarello, and uh, all the other students around me were kind of struggling with it. I watched how they were struggling, and I thought, well, you kind of have to, you know, figure out something that's a little rope with your body. Sure. And uh, now read in your book, I mean, I, I was all over the clock, but the 10 and 12, or the, the way of rolling it at a certain degree and then rolling it back and then rolling it out again, rather than just, you know, willy-nilly. Yeah, uh, well, these processes I, I formulated myself. These weren't taught to me. So I was taught in a very basic way through Italian. And at the time when I first learned it, I didn't speak any Italian, maybe half a percent. I'm maybe 20% now. I only speak enough time to get myself in trouble at this point. So um, You should be speaking enough time to get yourself out of trouble. That seems like more, the more <laughs> that's important. Next. Yeah. That's next. Um, but um, I had to watch. I had to watch to understand the movements. And 
So I had the basic idea, but over the last decade, I've literally transcribed and interpreted what I learned there into very digestible sequence so that people can understand how to do it. And that's why I came up with the clock system is working 10, 12, and two, just those sections so that you can continue to turn the sfoglia around and around. And my goal is to get you to roll around sfoglia. So I needed to break it up into these sequential kind of processes and make it palatable, make it digestible. And that was my ultimate goal. And the sfoglia is just the dough itself. So you have a, a ball of dough and then the sfoglia is the sheet that you roll from this ball of dough. And by turning it, rolling it, and turning it again, and continuing to roll 10, 12, and 2, eventually, if you have persistence, you'll get it thin enough to do whatever you need to do, whether that's tagliatelle or tortelloni or lasagna or whatever. Let's talk about the doughs, because sure. you said easily digestible, and it's great that you actually broke it down to four doughs, four yes. master doughs in this book. Um, one is flour and water, one is eggs, spinach, and then gnocchi, which we, we can talk about and I can potentially contest it being uh, a pasta. Oh, it's 100% a pasta. Not a dumpling? You're splitting hairs there. <laughs> I thought we've been doing that this whole show. But these four master doughs, uh, what, what is the common thread or lesson that, that can be carried on through all of them? Like, what, what, should, like, what should someone know? Well, first of all, buy a digital scale. And then when you get it in the mail, press the gram button. Preach. Amen. I love it. Yes. Press the gram button. You need to weigh it. So the more that you can control in this process, the better. What is outside of your control, forget it. It's going to be okay. So it's not just like, oh, too moist, throw some more flour in. No. Measure it out because pasta is essentially bread without the yeast. So would you make bread by eye? Absolutely not. I'm the wrong person to ask that. <laughs> okay. So measure it out. That's number one. Number two, don't stress yourself out because the worst thing that can happen is pasta. Okay. It's going to be delicious. So it's all good. Don't worry about it. How is that not a t-shirt or bumper sticker? We're trying. Yeah. We're trying. <laughs> pasta will happen. Yeah. Pasta will happen. Um, so, so that's one and two. Uh, the other thing is the... The doughs have been formulated as gorilla proof. I've tested all of these doughs in extreme heat, extreme cold, humidity, super dry, high elevation, the whole bit. I took it everywhere. So this formula, this 59% hydration with whole eggs works basically everywhere. I know. I've rolled it in 110 degree heat. I've rolled it in super, super humid atmosphere. I've rolled it at high elevation. I rolled it in a super cold atmosphere and it works everywhere. So I've taken most of the guesswork out of you. If you go to Bologna and you see Anona making pasta, she's gonna eyeball that shit mm -hmm. because she's internally calibrated to do so because she's been making it since she was six years old. I'm not there yet and neither are you. Neither are most of the people listening. They won't be unless they start making pasta now until the day that they die. Then you can achieve this internal calibration. So measure it out, pay attention to the details, and ultimately key into the conversation that you're having with this pasta. This is an animal, it's not just pasta. So you need to listen to what it's doing. If it's sticking to the table or your mozzarella, give it some love. 
throw some flour on it. If it's, if it's not acting the way that you need it to be, I offer suggestions and troubleshooting techniques to guide you in the right way to ultimate success. You know what I thought was fascinating is that we've talked about Bologna so much and it's such a big well, part. Well, this, this book is a love letter to, to the city and, the, and these people. But then why do we start with Pappardelle in the book, which is tied to Tuscany? Very true. So the book is laid out in sequential order as I am teaching you. So Pappardelle is obviously way easier to roll out than Tagliatelle or the thinness level for Tortellini. So it goes in succession. The most difficult pastas are at the end. The easier pastas, like lasagna or pappardelle, they're at the beginning. Because you don't have to, you can hide all of your mistakes in lasagna. If you fuck this <laughs> thing up and it's so ugly, brutto, you can hide it with bechamela, parmigiano, and ragu. It's all good. Well, then mattagliati means, you know... Uh, Badly cut. But yet yours are so perfectly cut in the book. Of course they are, because yeah. <laughs> I'm fucking crazy. Yeah. So I always thought that you could hide bad pasta by calling it bad pasta. Sure, you can do that as well. But lasagna tastes better than... True, yeah. The pasta fagioli is great. Don't get me wrong, but lasagna is much like the tortellini in Bologna. The lasagna is, is that quintessential Sunday dish that you make for everyone. It's the most convivial pasta that you can possibly make. You could be a little more haphazard, even though I know you're not. No, totally, totally. Go for it. Make it super saucy and go for it. It's amazing. But you can hide your mistakes. And the pappardelle is a little bit like that as well. How pa many shapes do you actually have in the book? There are 14. Uh, the one I was most attracted to right away, because I am an Ashkenazi Jew, is Tricchetti. You know, and I grew up eating kasha varnishka, the, the bow tie noodles. Sure, yeah. Um, the first time I ever attempted to make it, I was intimidated because you look at that shape and said, how the hell am I going to make this out of flat piece of dough? Oh. It's not that hard. No, it's not that hard. Pasta's not hard. It's not hard. It's just work. I don't think there's anything in life that involves food that's hard. People make it hard. Mm -hmm. They start involving, you know, thermal circulators and, you know, liquid nitrogen. That shit's hard. It just takes work. There is no genius in the kitchen. There is only work. I didn't say that. Ducasse said that. W would you say that stricchetti or this bowtie noodles is simply just a cut in a pinch? Sure. At the very basis of it. Basically, that's what it is. However... How many times have you eaten bow tie pasta or farfalle and it's been overcooked in the fan and crunchy in the center? Most of Most. the time, yes. So what I've done is re-engineered the way that we shape it so that I create a channel for the water to pass through so that it cooks uniformly. So the way that I shape the stricchetti is completely different than everybody else. Everybody's just going to crunch it in the middle and you go, okay, I got, I got some farfalle, great. But if you take the, the blade of dough it's fluted on each side. It's a rectangle. You place your index finger in the middle, and then you draw in the sides with your middle finger and thumb and pull upwards, creating two mountains with a valley in the middle, and you connect the tips of the mountains and press completely down back down to single thickness. Then you have a uniform piece of pasta that's not gonna be crunchy, because you're allowing and creating a channel for the water to pass through so it cooks uniformly. And you use this great tool called gravity. I do, in fact. 
Yeah, I love that in this book. A lot of the motions themselves are weight and counterweight gravity, using something to roll it against, incline. Using kinetic energy, absolutely. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. Because, again, it's, it is based on body mechanics. It's based on kinesiology. It's based on gravity, natural laws. Why go against natural laws when you can work within them? Why go against non-stuff pastas and start putting stuff inside and, and letting internal forces be part of this whole conversation? Stuffed pastas. I did not invent stuffed pastas. I actually don't run that, that many stuffed pastas just because they're more difficult to teach. The movement and folds and dexterity needed to achieve properly formed stuffed pasta is actually hard to teach people because it's not natural to twist your hands this way and pinch this way and fold this way or whatever it is. Like, it's hard to get to that thinness because when you take a single thinness piece of pasta and you connect two points, you have what's called a touch point, right? So you take single thickness and you connect it. Now you have double thickness, right? So when you take, for instance, a tortelloni, you're gonna make, take a diamond shape pasta on your hand, you're going to join the southern tip to the northern tip, creating a double thickness. If you don't depress that back down to single thickness, you're going to have a crunchy bit. So then when you take the two tips of the triangle and conjoin them together at the bottom, now you have eight times the thickness. So if you don't depress that all the way back down to single thickness, then you have a crunchy bit. So teaching people that is one of the most challenging things. So I don't really run that many stuffed pastas at Felix. I mean, triangly, um, sure. it's stuffed pasta. All the tortello shapes are yes. essentially stuffed pasta. Um, then at the end, we have like caramella, which is... Caramella, which is a modern shape. Mm. Caramella is a modern shape, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about shapes for a sec, because we've talked a lot about these historical ones, but... And you've modernized a couple, or at least uh, changed the architecture to your mm. liking. Have you invented, or ho- are you hoping to invent a new shape? I've tried in the past um, without any kind of great success. I don't. Um, I'm, a, I'm a tuning fork for tradition. But, I mean, I what wa- shapes are missing? I don't think there's any missing. I think that the the... The ones that are interesting to me are the ones that have been forgotten, the ones that are extinct, the ones that need rediscovering. I don't care about about making new shapes. I want to discover the ones that have been forgotten because there's far many of those than the ones that we can create. Like, why make new shapes? Yeah, I mean, when you have something as, as quirkily named as Struts and Pretzi, I feel like a lot of people come and want to make the priest strangler yes uh, are, are there other shapes that you found in history uh, that have similar stories or have that have For that sure. hook that might yeah, yeah. strozza preti is actually very very interesting because there's a similar story connected to strozza preti strozza preti the story behind it is essentially uh, the only people with money and in feudal times was the church and uh, the court. So if any of these people would show up at your house, you had to put forth your best whatever cheese or whatever. So this one bishop would uh, visit this one pasta maker's house 
every week because she would make these twisted pastas. He loved them. And he would eat them so much that one day he ate them with so much gusto that he choked. And thus the Strozza Preti was born. But there's a similar story connected to a completely different shape from Trentino Alto Adige, which is called Strangolo Preti, which is a bread dumpling. So totally different pasta shape but the same story connected or used so that it may live. There's just a lot of voracious priests eating pasta all over Italy, it seems to me. Yes. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about this shape of pasta for a second because, you know, you have long, you have small, you have round, you have, you know, purses. Um, what sauces go with which ones and why? Because we've talked about a couple of these combinations, but sure. there must be some fast rule Italians are very specific in how they cook they cook with what's around them and what is in season so you should cook like an Italian if it's in season and it looks good make pasta with it absolutely that's where all these dishes were born and the iterations of condimenti or dressings of pasta are as numerous as the cooks alive and dead so there's no real rules. There's only dogma and there's only tradition, but sometimes tradition is the practice of bad habit. So throw out the rules. There, there are dark dogmatic and traditional uh, aspects of dressing pasta, right? Tagliatelle bolognese, no fish with seafood. Uh, you know, you have to serve this with that. Don't serve the tortellini with Pana, like it's all really comes down to the same thing that we just discussed. What is authentic to you? What is it? If it's authentic to you, if you are moved to do it, tradition is cumulative. It's something that you are inspired to do again and again. So if you're inspired to do so, just fucking do it. You want to make spaghetti with broccoli? Go hard. If you want to make pappardelle with chicken, go hard. There's nothing wrong, in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with dressing pasta with something that you're inspired to do. I don't have any issues with people uh, taking the initiative to make pasta with Japanese ingredients or Chinese ingredients or whatever it is. If you're inspired to do so, you should do it. But be willing to take some flack from some grandmothers. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to happen. You know, it's going to happen because those culinary traditions are so deeply rooted within their society that they that's their prerogative to give you shit. That's okay. But as long as you're inspired to do it, everything else is noise. Well, I'm going to give you a call when I finally figure out what Turkelly is as far as the pasta <laughs> shape goes. Uh, four doughs, 14 shapes. American Strolglino. Evan, thank you so much for being on. Thank you on. so much. My and of pleasure. Of course, if you want to just go taste his pasta here in the U.S., go to Felix Trattoria in L.A. Please do. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to back here. Hoping to have you back here. See, my mouth is just salivating from all this pasta <laughs> talk. Next Tuesday at 3, a big thank you to our sponsor, Music by Cookies and Amanda Engineering. Cheers. food scene is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. 
for our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening.